Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. How do I tell them I don't want to go out on Tuesday without seeming like a see you next Tuesday? Oh, fuck the new me. Who the hell is that in a hat? Welcome to And Just Like That, The Writer's Room, Season 2. This is the official companion podcast for the Max original And Just Like That. I'm Michael Patrick King, your host for the podcast, as well as writer, executive producer, and director of And Just Like That. And joining me today are writers and executive producers of And Just Like That, Julie Rottenberg. Hi. And Elisa Zaritsky. Hello. And writer and consulting producer, Susan Fales-Hill. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. And this episode is called Met Cute, written by Susan Fales-Hill and myself. Get it? Because romantic comedies are usually, there's a meet cute. So this is our Met Cute. Well, the thrill of getting a second season of television these days is that you're getting a second season of television. That's amazing, right? So when you're a writer and you actually get the ability to come back, the first question you ask in the room is, what do we want to do? I personally was very very happy with the new characters we brought on. And I was happy that we didn't pretend that they were already in the universe of the ladies. Meaning that we needed to introduce them to the audience the way they were being introduced to the main characters from the other series. But we, I remember circling because it was very, it was a lot of heavy lifting. How do they meet these people? We're, We're obviously trying to diversify their lives and kind of make them more reflective of our world. So it required a lot of thought and handiwork. I'd like to build on what you're saying, uh, Elisa, because I feel you and uh, some of the writers who are no longer uh, with us uh, this season had a very hard task last year because not only were you introducing a slew of new characters, but you were also responding to a very painful moment in our country between the racial reckoning and the pandemic. And I felt like I had the luxury of stepping into a world that had been created and our characters could just breathe and relax. And that was an enormous, enormous luxury. And the other thing I want to say about Susan, and it's, you know, we all bring ourselves to the show. We just always do. I mean, you don't write a show without thinking what part of me is like Carrie, what part of me is like Miranda, what part of me is like Steve. Susan, to me, was one of the ideas of what Elisa Todd Wexley would be in the real world. I don't like to invent characters that I haven't seen. And Susan has a life that's um, similar and glamorous, but also has the underside that a writer needs, which is the, I call it the high-low of it all. Susan's built her way up, but she does have a a very hands-on reference to all that world that LTW has, as well as all the other characters. I want to just point out right now, because none of you can actually see Susan Bales Hill, <laughs> she actually looks 
as gorgeous and beautifully, fashionably decked out every single day as LTW. <laughs> if I mm. were not seeing it with my own eyes, I would call bullshit. I thought but you were going to say. it's actually true. For those of you who can't see Susan, she's encouraging us to keep talking <laughs> with her hand about how great she is. Anyway, here's the point. The point is, last season, people reacted. One of the things that I was thrilled about was the polar response. We had hinted at it in the last podcast, but in this podcast, we can, we really have perfect proof that it went from, I love this show, I can't wait to see more, to pitchforks they and torches, die. they should <laughs> all die. die. Yeah. And I loved that for the first time, I believe in my career, I was like, Oh, people are talking in a time when people do not talk. So it made an impact. And I think one of the interesting things about it, it felt similar to the drumbeat that happened during Sex and the City, whereas instead of binging all 10 episodes, which is was sort of the fashion before we did Max last year, when they started doing two, then one, then one, then one, the fact that there was one episode a week made people who loved it wanting to see the other one and people who hated it write pieces about how much they hated it all week long. And they so they were never be- going to watch another episode ever until the next, next week. Right. And they were like, <laughs> okay, but that is definitely the last episode I'm ever watching. I hate them so much. It's terrible. I want to kill myself. But there was a drumbeat. So we had all this, this whole plowed up earth to discuss what we wanted to do. And I think that the great joy of a series, as I sort of alluded to earlier, was that you get to do more and what the starting point is. And for me, what I started this season with the thought of is, based on last year, is judging a book by its cover. Mm. And I really thought, because we created four new characters that were never seen in the world before and put them in an impossible situation, like Naya and Miranda. You've known Naya for 20 minutes. You've known Miranda for 20 years. Like the imbalance of that only worked because of the gigantic talent of the actors that we hired to play these new people. But it's a lot of judging a book by a cover. Uh, Che is this because this is how they look on meeting. Naya is this because this is how we met her. And that there was no chance LTW is socialite, da-da-da-da-da. Seema is just a worker who has no love in her life. The idea that you meet these people in one season and then in the second season get to open the book and read it is exciting to me. And even when you've opened so many books called Carrie, to go even further into a new chapter was really thrilling, I thought. Completely. I I think also what you did so beautifully last year, though, was give a platform to people who are normally invisible, whether they are women of a certain age. (laughs) As the old line goes, in Hollywood, you're either babe or district attorney. There's no (laughs) (laughs) in-between. That's a line from, uh, I think, First Wives Club. It's not mine. You gave visibility to non-binary people, a Latin Irish non-binary person at that. Uh, You gave visibility to an Indian woman. You have two Black women representing different facets of Black bourgeois life. And you showed the mosaic of New York, which I have never seen. Shows are either all white or all Black or all something. And to finally see the blend is, for me, one of the huge joys of watching the show and then this year uh, being part of it. So I wouldn't underestimate 
what that was. First of all, thank you, Susan. And I will say, having someone who didn't work on the show last season, who also has a perspective that we didn't have, was incredibly helpful to us. I also want to mention when you said we have the luxury now of having gotten all that response, good, bad, and otherwise, that we could decide who we wanted to see more of, who we wanted, what we wanted to respond to. You know, I love the fact that Che became this incredibly polarizing figure. And someone asked you recently, I think, Che's not coming back, are they? And it was like, yeah, they are. And it was like, yeah, we love this character. We felt like we have more to say. We're not going to. That was the biggest shock for me was that we created a villain. We we didn't see them that way, but it was, that was a shocking. I I have a very unique perspective of that, which is in the first two episodes, Che was a hero. Everybody thought, that's a cool new character. Ooh, great. (laughs) Oh, they're so funny and they're strong and they say things to carry that no one has ever said. And the minute Miranda became infatuated with Che, they became a villain because they broke up a marriage in everybody's minds, even though... They changed Miranda's character and all that. Hey, look, here's what you do. You don't try to do the same thing over and over again because that's dead. So what we did last year is we took Sex in the City and broke it, made it a new show called And Just Like That. And this season, we wanted to grow even more in Just Like That. And that's what we were about to talk about today. So if you haven't seen the first episode, you should probably not listen because we're going to ruin some of the party for you. It's quite a party. And we wanted to start with the idea of, I think in writing, you paint yourself into a corner. You don't hold back. And then what do you do when you paint yourself in a corner? You don't go over the wet floor. You have to go up a wall. So the first corner that we painted ourselves into was Carrie kissed someone in an elevator. Looking at Carrie, I think, at this age and stage in her life was a uh, a new opportunity to really think, like, old Carrie was always on a quest, right? She was, she fell in love with Big in the first episode of Sex and the City. And then she was trying to get him the entire, the entire series. She was trying to get him and she was studying other people and other relationships along the way and having experimental sex sometimes. But she was always reaching for him. And then to like what happens to a person and, and we all know people that this has happened to. They've found the love of their life. They've lost the love of their life. Well, now it's kind of like she's what had now? it. She's had everything. So now she can have now what? a fun weekly but you know interlude interlude it's yeah. a little bit like the pressure's off now and but the the bigger question is you said now she can have but can she and that's what her friends are asking her can you have mm-hmm. uh, a weekly interlude and she's asking herself of yes, course and because that's fun and right. because we're no longer doing voiceovers where Carrie's above the show looking back at it it's more fun to write a character who doesn't even know where anything is going. Sex in the City was always sort of written from the point of view of this all happened and I'm summing it up for you. And just like that is like, 
I'm in the middle of this. Where's this going to go? Who knows? Because when you're older, you realize you don't know. All that you know is that you know nothing. And one of the huge pleasures of writing about women this age is that when you're young, you know happiness. When you're older, because you've been through excruciating pain, you discover the true meaning of joy. And that is so much fun to write and to explore that the incredible joy comes from real depths of pain and experience. And the other fun thing for us is you have to understand that there's a couple of characters in season two that we just took a leap of faith with. Franklin, number one, all we knew from Franklin was that he was had said three lines and we're like- And he had beautiful dimples. Yes, Let's not okay. forget that Just keep objectifying people, Susan. <laughs> Just keep objectifying men, Susan. I'm a cougar. Susan I am the cougar. Oh, my God. Now it's a podcast in 1994, trouble. as Carrie would say. Um, anyway, um, the fact of the matter is, the reality is, we didn't know what Ivan could do, and we didn't even know who Franklin was when we we threw the 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 gauntlet, like, okay, now we'll find this character. And the other one in this case. In this episode is Jackie's wife, Smoke. We didn't even know who that character was, but we were like, okay, we already wrote characters. Let's invest. Let's double down. Let's see what's there. And luckily, it all became very exciting because the actors were so amazing. So since we're starting with sex, we ended with sex. Let's go further into sex. And then we thought, let's always- not run from sex this year. Hmm. Not that we did last year, but grief and sex right. are kind they, of a hard it would have. I think it would have been really weird and tacky if we ran to sex, we let Carrie run to sex in this season. The only time last year she ran anywhere towards dating, she wound up vomiting on his shoes. (laughs) That was our choice. That That was our classy high level. That was the classy classy high level choice. (laughs) And so this year we decided let's have her jump into bed and it's fun. And then from the writing point of view, then you start thinking, okay, where's everybody else? So we thought, let's start with everybody having sex. Everybody. Let's reveal them who they're with. Because basically, Miranda, at the end of season one, was going to LA to visit Che and their pilot. Having gone through the scorched earth of their relationship, their trouble with their son, their affair, coming to terms, telling it to Carrie and Miranda. They are ready now for this new adventure. She has red hair again. She's back to her original recipe, Miranda. (laughs) Her son gave her his permission at the end of the season, which was very moving. Yeah, and then she's now in L.A. with Che. Okay, so if we knew Carrie kissed somebody in an elevator and that was going to be the beginning of her thrust, to me, the idea of Miranda... In L.A., doing a television pilot with Che was such an amusement park that we spent weeks trying to decide what's the primo Miranda in L.A. story. Of course, we knew that it was their honeymoon, basically. I always thought of the 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 pool and the flauna. The orange fla- tree. And the flora yes, and the house. fauna. It's very much the Garden of Eden for them. And uh, she's very sexual in this episode, which is important because her complaint about herself with Steve mm-hmm. was- It had all dried up. It, it had all dried yeah. up. And she wanted more out of life. So here we are following that and giving her more. And in the first episode, we see them in a sort of idyllic Los Angeles. And-, and 
till it isn't. Right. The good Los Angeles. The honeymoon. <laughs> exactly. Before it all goes dark. Yeah. And I mean, in the place it goes dark is in a sensory Spoil. deprivation egg. Right. Now, right, like, right. first of all, when you think, okay, sensory deprivation, and, you know, everything we do pretty much is based on something that has happened to us. I've done sensory deprivation all the time. Actually, that is pause in LA where I went to in that egg, where we filmed it, in that actual egg, and I got salt in my eye. And as it happened, the and saline dropped in my eye. First story was I was like, okay, this is Miranda. <laughs> like, you just know when they show up inside you, like, oh, this is Miranda's story. Bringing the moment of self-realization to a screeching halt. Yeah, I may not have kissed, kissed a I hot have, Latin guy in an <laughs> elevator, but I have had saline solution drop in my eye naked in an egg. It's the opposite of sensory deprivation when you actually get stung. (laughs) And so the first thing is we get the idea, and we had many other journeys we went down. We were going to do psilocybin. We were going to do microdosing, ayahuasca. And we was like, what's, okay, ayahuasca. We did like two days. I was was holding on to ayahuasca. It was more than two days. I I had a hard time. I remember a month of ayahuasca. Oh, my God. I I feel like we shot it. No, it was. <laughs> Until I went to that seminar where they said, don't do ayahuasca, it's cultural appropriation, and it's... <laughs> Listed all the ayahuasca that had been done in television, and eventually, even Finally. though Miranda would have been funny. <laughs> Please recall, we mapped out an entire ayahuasca, what they call an arc. There was there was a whole ayahuasca right, anyway. journey. I almost went and took ayahuasca <laughs> in order to understand what this was. But and the then- point is, what we realized eventually was we have seven main characters and their stories have to happen. What's the the ground zero for LA that we could think that hasn't been done yet? And it was Miranda in an egg. And then of course, when we fall in love with it, then we, I call up Cynthia and I go, hey, <laughs> Cynthia, um, would, you, would you be okay being completely naked? And she was like, what? And I said, <laughs> would you be completely naked? Um, but like, it's not funny unless you're completely naked. She goes, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> God you, bless Cynthia. That is, that is 27 and, years of and trust. never and wavered the well, entire The jurist. daring of all these actors, I have to say, is to be applauded. All of them just go for it. Yeah, they do. So with, with the Miranda storyline, it's really all about, our show is always about writing what's underneath maybe the security or what's underneath the confidence? What's the insecurity underneath the strong person? And we did that with Miranda suddenly doubting that their relationship is more than sexual. And we collided it into Che's surprising, I think, vulnerability about their body. I thought that you thought that our relationship was just sexual. And I made a mistake coming to L.A. and taking it out of the bedroom. No, it was about the genes. And I th- I think the vulnerability, especially with Che, was one of the most important, um, almost detectives, like forensics for us as writers, because... Che, the Che that we met in season one was on the rise of their comedy career, and we we met them at a real high. And they were this persona, 
and they were, you know, a comic kind of whose head was getting bigger. Stand up. A stand-up who was, you know, rash, cocky, rash and, and cocky, had and had, had built this identity for themselves and was finally being rewarded. So our task, and I think it was from day one, we knew was like, what, who's Che before they became this, you know, on the way up person, and what's underneath all of that bravado? And I think you hinted at it in the very first, second episode when they meet Miranda, and. They say to Miranda, wow, you're a mama bear. And the suggestion is they didn't have a mama bear. I think they even say something to the effect of, you, you sense w- the longing for that kind of protection. Interesting. And so there was, and there was the moment when they gave a tissue to the assistant uh, of Big who was crying. So there was a, a tenderness there and there was a sense of, this person didn't come from a safe environment. Um, I mean, the other thing, too, is when anybody said to me, like, if they had a strong opinion about Che, particularly comics, young comics, when we would run across them, I would say, well, what what didn't you like about Che? They go, so cocky, so full of themselves. Oh, I know Che. Yes. And I was like, okay, then we did our job. You know Che. Che exists in the world. You just don't like that character because they're too competent, they're too in your face, they're too woke, they're too perfect. Mm-hmm. They're too shiny. Too cool for school or something. Yeah, like, and they yeah. know it. They're and all it, ego. It was also fascinating for us to hear from uh, the non-binary writer who joined us that— Jess Henderson. Like any group, there isn't just one version. <laughs> and so Che is one individual— one representation of non-binariness. They are not the emblem for all non-binary people everywhere at all times. They're writing a pilot about themselves, and then they're being told by somebody else how to represent themselves, which actually, as a person of color writing in television, I can absolutely relate to being told, well, that's not how you are. And it's sort of, but I'm standing here in front of you, and this is how I am. Yeah, so. and then the writer is a non-binary <laughs> writer who comes in and says, this is how I want to show the non-binary experience in Chase. Like, but that's not mine, but that's television. You're married to people that they then distort your reality sometimes. Whether people want to see a vulnerable Che is a whole other situation, but that's definitely I'll what we served I'll be very curious. Up. I yeah. think it comp it will complicate people's feelings. It also brings Miranda and Che past sex. And that's what Miranda was hoping for. And that's what's interesting about that episode for them. They are connected in a comfortable, vulnerable moment. And Miranda even makes a really bitchy joke about thin crust pizza at the end, which, of course, is the way to Che's heart is through humor. But prior to that, she says, you are the most beautiful person I've ever seen, which is quite a magnificent Mm -hmm. statement. And then Che, the stand-up, can't own it, says, I am the most beautiful person you've ever seen. So that's Miranda and Che. And now we have the Met Ball. We did the Met Ball for fashion because it's fun. We didn't know what it would be, but we thought Met Ball. It was also as in a great Austin novel when the assembly ball brings all the characters together this was a wonderful vehicle for bringing all the characters together and weaving them into all one the New York story. characters, anyway, that were in town, and also the idea of bringing these. See how these women are all connected, and it was a very big deal. Like, how are they all going? And 
Well, Seamus carries plus one, and that brings up the Franklin story, like you're not inviting Franklin, which is the old paradigm of how Jackie thinks. You know, and Jackie gets to say the line to Carrie Bradshaw, men are not just sex objects, which is important. And that a lot has changed since (laughs) Since you were out there, there, Carrie Bradshaw. Men have feelings. (laughs) Both. I feel like it, it references the original show and also just life after widowhood. Carrie Bradshaw, the world has changed since you've been out there, okay? It's not all right to objectify people anymore. Men have feelings, too. And this is like the fun of doing a series that's also referenced by another series. And I thought, or the movie even, like, how do we get her back in the wedding gown? <laughs> like, literally, how do we get Carrie back in the wedding gown? I had an Without impulse. having a wedding. That that was going to be a moment for the audience. And that's often, I want to say, back in the series, you would sometimes come in with just an impulse or an idea or a... Image. Yes, yeah. just an image the of image. what you want. Because I knew the image would mean something to people, and then it was up to us to figure it out. So we created, how do you get her in a wedding gown? Well, she would have to be forced into it by having the other dress be a disaster. And then the theme was veiled beauty because we wanted to get around the word veil, which gets you to the wedding gown. So, you know, we call up Molly and uh, Molly Roger and Danny Santiago, who are our designers, and go like, where's the wedding gown? They're like... In a museum somewhere. <laughs> we have to call England. Under lock and then they're and like key. calling Vivian Westwood's estate and finding out it's locked in a vault somewhere and can we get it back? And it has to be that one. And I then the bird. The government was involved. Where's the bird? Was the big question. Where's the bird? So we found the wedding gown and the bird. I think Carrie, Sarah Jessica had the bird in her <laughs> fortress bird in a of styletude. <laughs> And uh, then it was just the fun of, now what? We can't just wear the wedding gown. And Danny and Molly came up with the idea of the cape. And we didn't want Smoke, which is the designer, to be completely inept. So we let Carrie wear that gorgeous blue cape with it. It's sumptuous. Yeah. And so you get this whole idea of going to the ball. And our original conceit was that they go to the ball. And then it became, what? What is it yeah, more what exciting are we, what if they are we don't see get there? there? That we haven't seen. What haven't we seen? Has been and so it's, it's the idea of Cinderella getting in the coach rather than going to the palace felt more held in a little bit. Right? And the behind the scenes or the seams, as it were, of <laughs> creating gowns. Yeah, and that Altelier scene was really fun because everybody kept saying, do you need it? And I was like, you need it. Because it's like <laughs> funny. It's it's like, it's it's almost like Degas. It's like seeing a, a, a an old dress made. You know what I yes. mean? It's old fashioned, old world. Absolutely, and something people don't know about. But it also kicks off uh, Charlotte's character arc for the season because she is a woman of great intelligence and accomplishment who was chosen to focus on her family. And she has this wonderful moment when she says, yes, Harry says to me, go and be everything. But what he really means is bring me my everything bagel. And part of her journey this season is going to be realizing her own dreams and realizing she's more than the mother of her children. And uh... But I also love, I agree, I agree, and that's such a subtle moment of reckoning of her identity. But I love that in this episode, her, the smallness of who is my partner, my best (laughs) gay friend or my husband, and the farce of who's going to be my plus one is, was 
elegantly uh, written by you guys and one of my favorite new um, expressions that I've used several times since shooting the episode is the tap, tap, tap of Anthony's philosophy of gay sex and mores of this isn't working for me. So, uh, honey, you're tap, you're, tap, 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 go. Hello, this is your male escort, and I will be putting out. Unfortunately, you will not. What? Tap, tap, tap. Seema's back in. You gotta be fucking kidding me. To have a marriage that is as long as Charlotte and Harry's is, and we've, some of us here have been in long uh, partnerships, that you can still not be able to predict yes. your partner. <laughs> the fact that Charlotte's like, he would never want to go to something like and what this. what I love about why <laughs> Harry wants to go, I mean, the comedy of Al fashion hurts, but what I really love, he says, you mean no one from work is going to get to see me on TV? Like, the, the <laughs> Met Ball Rihanna. comes down to With the Rihanna. other lawyer. He, he, I don't even think he cares about Rihanna. He wants them to see him on TV at work. Right. Like, the, I'm not a lawyer. He wants to have his 15 minutes. He wants his little <laughs> yeah. hop, you know. Yeah, so tap, tap, tap is our catchphrase when I'm about to tell you something you're not going to like and you're just going to have to move you're on. You're supposed through. to be fine about this. <laughs> tap, tap, tap. And I want to take a moment to uh, to talk about the historic importance of having this Black woman in the most beautiful Valentino haute couture uh, dress, which was flown in at great expense. Oh, my God. It was it was made by Valentino for us. And in the lining, it says, for Nicole Ari <gasps> Parker. And just like that. And her head almost blew off when she said Wow. I didn't. Uh, I didn't and know it has that. this exquisite headdress that had its own... I think it had its own plane to get here because it, it was so trailer. enormous. And oh then the, the 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 unglamorous part was we realized the headdress was like a catcher's mask on Nicole's face. And all that wire just kept pushing into her gorgeous face. And, and she we was in like, agony. We were like, oh, my God, when she takes the headdress off, she's going to have headdress dents. <laughs> What's the next scene? Does this What's scar? the next scene? And it was like Nicole's t- she's talking this. I said, is it bad? She goes, it's fine. <laughs> but it's like a cancer's mask pushing you know on her face. You know what? Fashion hurts. Yeah. Fashion really hurts, as Harry would say. Harry beauty, my mother used to say. I mean, as, literally. As, as Harry learned. Harry, hurt, is uh, Harry is the story version of what Nicole wouldn't say, which is, ouch, get me out of this couture nightmare. This. It was like Hellraiser, but couture, <laughs> pinhead. And then when we took it off, it was like she had a grid on her face, and we were like massaging it's, it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I remember because we shot the uh, atelier scenes later that day, and I remember it was like the big question was: Was Nicole's face going gonna bounce to back? Have, right, recovered in time for the coverage. She powered through. She, she suffered powered through. for beauty, but mm-hmm. I think part of that is because she understood also the importance. I just want to share briefly. Uh, Diane Carroll was like my second mom. And she would always tell me the story of uh, doing an out-of-town opening of No Strings. And uh, this society matron from Chicago came backstage and said, you were wonderful. I'm hosting a reception at my home for the entire cast, but I'm not inviting you because seeing a Black woman in an evening gown will confuse my children. Mm. <laughs> Who so, said that? Uh, a society matron from Chicago in to the Diane 1960s. Carroll, to Diane Carroll, legendary star of television and so, screen and uh, stage. It is... It's a big political statement to have a black woman in an haute couture gown and saying, yes, this too is a black woman. 
Uh, so I think Nicole would have walked through fire. She would have walked on hot coals for us and smiled uh, to, to capture that moment. And the it's other beautiful. moment I remember you being so excited about was the idea of Herbert scooping up her train and carrying it across Park Avenue. You thought, well, women will love him for that. They, they're going to adore this powerful alpha male who is a little bit sexist in moments. He married a very powerful woman, but every once in a while he just wishes she'd go along to get along, and he carried her train. And I want to mention a little behind-the-scenes bit of trivia. We knew we wanted Herbert and LTW to have this sexy thing on their way to an event. We thought it was going to happen last season in the final episode on their way to the— Yeah, the Mitzvah. And it was one of those things—there were a few things starting this season that we were like, what did we not get to do last season that we really want to do this season? So that felt like we were we were that hanging chat. We got the, to make that story happen. And, and I actually think that the sexiest line in the entire—I'm even going to say season—is Chris Jackson saying, I only need eight. Yeah. About how long it would take him to to pleasure her. Well, eight I minutes. Think women are also going to love this beautiful man— wanting to give his wife pleasure, so. From the waist down. <laughs> right. That, I, nothing could get smeared. I, as someone who worries about things feeling real, I appreciated that you had her say, like, I'm done from the waist up. Don't touch my hair or my face. <laughs> that I appreciated that. Thank you. And, of course, the fly in Seema's Met Ball ointment is the fact that she's seeing a guy who wants to introduce her to his son, which for us implies, oh, something's moving forward. And we have Zed left over from last season, much like Franklin. And now what do we do with him? Seeming sort of like Mr. Perfect in yeah, a way. Yeah, he's Mr. Sexy, Mr. Mr. Europe, Mr. Mr. Into Perfect. her. So nice we wanted smokes. to introduce something that would create uh, a choice for her. And in the, I would say in the Sex in the City style, she would choose the Met Ball over the man. Because as she says to him, this feels like a mess because he's living with his ex-wife. I'm not missing the Met for a mess. So it really shows Seema's fire. She chooses herself over a man, which is a very important character in our show, is this one woman character who chooses her well-being wrong or impulsively right over the idea of a man. Well, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but it also shows a trait of Seema that is possibly problematic. Is she too quick to write people off? So I like that it it you could view it as either she's choosing herself or she's uh, shrinking away from a potentially well, intimate uh, relationship. That's true because it just— in the way that we were talking about last season being almost like a first date with all of these <laughs> new characters. We didn't, we didn't know, know who she was in a relationship or who Naya was in her marriage. Like, we really we're had to crack them open and say, okay, is she someone – is this a problem? Is this – or pattern? Is this why she's – Single at 54. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We asked that very old-fashioned yeah. question. Yeah. Why is someone so lovely still mm-hmm. single? <laughs> Why haven't they found the love yeah. of their life? Which is something that we always ask if, and of course the answer is the love of your life is you. Anyway, not to get ahead of ourselves, but LTW, <laughs> aside from fashion, Boiler what we alert. wanted to do was show her life, her family. We set up this character that she had three kids, 
a career as a documentarian. A, and a, a fabulous art collection. Fabulous art collection, so fabulous husband, fabulous everything. So we like wanted to get into the nitty gritty of what does a woman like that have to do to keep it all going? So we created this. I would say backstage of the Wexleys. Their backstage is that dressing room, bedroom ensemble where you see the extreme length that they went to, her closet, which is like going to a candy store, his closet, which is like going to Brooks Brothers or something, and then their bedroom, which is sort of the island between the two. But the reality is we wanted to show LTW in charge, moving, and how much a mother has to do in order to keep her family going. And it was really fun and to show the kids, to show the French poem, to show going to school, to ground it with her checking their breath. And to me, one of the other joys was having grown up around incredibly glamorous women who were also very maternal <laughs> to show that, yes, you can have that style, but also that substance. And that, yes, you're dressed to the teeth, but you're still checking your child's And breath. also, of course, to mention that borderline Herbert um, old-fashionedness. Yes. He tells her he'll give her money in front of the daughter. And she makes a point of auto-correcting him right there. That With I respect. have a degree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're working too hard. Why don't you cancel this meeting and let me write you a check? Well, that is a very generous offer. But considering I am a grown woman with an MFA in film and two docs under my belt, I think... I can rely on myself to secure the financing. I mean, because of their incredible acting, the two of them are so in the moment with each other that you immediately just see this eye contact between them, lo looking at her, looking at him, then looking at the daughter, and you know exactly what she's well, freaking out about. The actors were having such a good time, Chris Jackson and Nicole Ari Parker, because they they're both in long-term marriages with children, and so much of it resonated for them in terms of how mu however much you love your spouse, that power struggle, and that somebody's dream is always taking precedence over someone else's. But the patterning that LTW doesn't want to continue in the generational shift from her to her daughter is men give women money because they aren't capable of their job. Mm -hmm. So she stops the train right there mm -hmm. and says, I have a degree. I can get this myself, and loud and clear, he says. So, speaking of families without children, that brings us to Naya. Mm. The whole arc of Naya last year was very complicated for us because we were trying to create a character that doesn't think they want children. She doesn't want children, and her husband does. And that puts them in a space where at the end of season one, he they were on a basically a trial separation while he's on the road. So when everybody's having this great sex in the montage, we have Naya watching great sex on television <laughs> and eating Flaming Hot Cheetos. And that's the comedy pop to the whole, yeah, it's all great. It's all sexy. It's all magical. And sometimes you're just watching tennis. She says Bridgerton knockoffs on TV. So we had an interesting thing happen. The first, in the scene, in the episode, you see Naya first talking to Miranda at Columbia. Then you see her at a bar because Miranda suggests she go out and stop feeling sorry for herself, but go out and have a glass of wine where she meets this very sexy man, Toussaint. And then the third scene is her drunk FaceTiming her husband who has, spoiler alert, <laughs> a person named Heidi in a hipster hat in his hotel room. 
even though they're fully clothed. That's his defense. When we wrote the script, the very first scene wasn't at Columbia. It was at Naya at home doing yoga in her kitchen because we were establishing this new apartment, like where she lives. It was very important for us to get people into their lives. And we wanted to get Naya out of the classroom into her life and show this Brooklyn apartment, this sunshine coming in the window, her calling Miranda, going to the refrigerator, drinking coconut water. And we filmed it. And then we were like, who is that? Yeah. The audience won't know who that is. We've jumped past what's recognizable. Yeah. In an effort to show another side of her, we threw out the side that is her main calling card, which is teacher. So we went back and filmed the first scene. And it's the only time we shot anything the entire season was Miranda calling Naya and she's at school eating a takeout salad. Well, that was so important because you did such a beautiful job last year of establishing her as this intellectual, as a force to be reckoned with. And I heard from so many people how powerful the scenes were between her and Miranda, particularly when Naya talks about not wanting a child, which is kind of a, even in the 21st century, a revolutionary thought because we're supposed to be defined by that as women. uh, And it was very freeing to people. Also, I think we got a little bit like, okay, what else is she besides uh, politically woke and intellectual and understanding and above Miranda's racial journey, Mm -hmm. like an overview of like where Miranda needs to get. We were like, okay, but like who's the person as well underneath? And also who is she when she's not having to argue her side of not wanting children? You know, that was so such a, a bastion of her story arc last year was she didn't want to have kids. That was their biggest conflict. And then what happens when you remove that? Who is she on her own? And that was the journey. The whole thing with episode one was open the book, see who else they are. So we got into the new chapters of each of these characters and we kind of were excited about the new pages. If I keep following the analogy, the new pages that we were able to turn for each of them. And uh, see where they go in the next episode. Which reminds me, Miranda, another source of outrage at the end of last season, was hearing that people were like, what happened to Miranda? Where is the Miranda we knew? And I think we all believed, we at least in the writer's room, that we were seeing a different side of Miranda, a Miranda who had broken out of her marriage, her old job, her identity as a mom, and to be able to bring her back in L.A. and see that that essential Miranda, original recipe Miranda peeking out felt good and right Well, to both us. Mirandas. The first one where she's sort of just it's all crazy good. in love, yeah. quote unquote, <laughs> and she's saying to Naya, best life ever, best me, new me ever. And then when she gets the salt in her eye, it's like, fuck the new me. Right. <laughs> There's two the Mirandas Miranda. right there. Right. But uh, we keep referencing how people reacted. And I want to say something about the process, which is, yes, that was in our minds. But at the end of the day, I felt as though in the process, we were always returning to the truth of the character's who are these women really? What would they really do? That was always the question. What does a, a Miranda do after she's left her marriage? What does Anaya do after the the man she's been dating since college she breaks up with? So the question always came back to who are these women really and what makes them tick? And Less. what makes them tick this season? 
Come back tomorrow and we'll discuss episode two, The Real Deal. And stream new episodes of And Just Like That only on Max. And listen to new episodes of this podcast right after the new episodes of the show. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And Just Like That, The Writer's Room is produced by Neon Hum Media for Max. At Neon Hum, Cher Morris is the executive producer. Joanna Clay is the lead producer. Sammy Allison is our head of production. Zoe Culkin is our associate producer. Sam Baer is our engineer. That's it for the show. Thank you for listening. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.